Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Dr. Temple Grandin. Dr. Grandin is one of the world's most respected experts in the fields of autism and animal behavior and livestock handling. As a toddler, she had speech delays as well as other signs of severe autism. Many hours of speech therapy and intensive training ultimately enabled Temple to speak. Mentoring by a high school science teacher and exposure to her aunt's ranch in Arizona motivated her to pursue a career as a scientist and livestock equipment designer. She's a prolific speaker, internationally best-selling author, and professor of animal science at Colorado State University. In 2020, she was honored as a top 10 college professor in America. And also in in 2010, Time 100, an annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world, named her in the heroes category. She was also the subject of the Emmy and Golden Globe winning semi-autobiographical film Temple Grandin, which is fantastic. Today, we'll be talking about her work and her recently released title, Navigating Autism, Nine Mindsets for Helping Kids on the Spectrum. Welcome, Temple. It's great to be here. It's really fabulous to have you. And I so appreciated your book. And I'll say what stood out the most to me, that... um, your focus on kind of taking into account, taking fully into account who a person is and how to nourish them. Uh, I wish that all children had that advantage. And of course, I imagine that you would say it's, it's even more important for kids on the spectrum, but I think that's an important message about children in general. So I really appreciate your focus on that. Well, thank you very much. Uh, so obviously you bring together a lot of learning and also a lot of personal experience. And I'm aware that when you were diagnosed, there was so much less known. So I'd, I'd like to start a little personally. Uh, I, in the process of reading the book, I really admired your mother because I had to figure that she didn't have as much access to knowledge about how to uh, support you. And yet it seems as if she did quite a good job of that. Would you say? Absolutely. She had a very good sense of how to stretch me just slightly outside my comfort zone and develop my strengths. By the time I was in um, seven years old, eight years old, I was really good at art. Mother always encouraged my art. She always encouraged me to draw lots of different things and not just the same horse head over and over again. I was very lucky to get into very good early educational intervention, super important. Um, Doctor she took me to was a neurologist who referred her to a school that two teachers just taught out of their house. 
and they did a lot of the really good things that you know teachers do today. Mm. But I'm a big believer in developing the kids' strengths. That's one of the things that mother did, and she had she had a good sense. Also, growing up in the 50s, we were outside playing all around. I have another book called The Outdoor Scientist, which is to get kids out doing things. My sister and I had a rock collection. We'd go observe animals. We'd go collect leaves. We just did all kinds of stuff outside. That's fantastic. And and I know one thing that can get get in the way of this. You know, I, I have to say, along with the theme of the show, I wouldn't necessarily consider autism itself a loss of any kind. It's a difference, but it can lead to loss. For instance, there's a, a quote in the book, some parents will feel relief at finding reasons for their child's behavior. Others will need to process grief and loss. Um, you know, they, they need uh, to know professionals understand and accept this. Well, parents' grief that the child is different than what they pictured can really interrupt them getting the child what that kid particularly needs. And then, of course, there's bullying and, you know, all the things that subsequently can happen from just being out of the norm. Um, Is that how you look at it as well, that really it's these subsidiary things that we might we might call losses more than the original thing itself? Well, the thing is, autism is a big spectrum. When kids are really little, you don't know how severe they are. I looked really severe when I was little. Fortunately, I had no signs of epilepsy, and that's usually a good sign. Uh, but when kids get older, um, you know, you've got the fully verbal kids, and then you have some kids that remain very se- severely impacted. See, this is the, this is the problem with autism. So yes. at one end of the spectrum, you've got Elon Musk, who uh, came out on a comedy show that he was uh, autistic. And then you have a child that uh, remains nonverbal that may have difficulty dressing themselves. And it's both called autism. You see, this is, this yeah. is a problem. very confusing, honestly. <laughs> well, that's, that's the problem. And you see, when the kids are little, they can look very severe. And that's why it's important to do really good early education. And you don't know when they're really little how they're going to kind of come out. Then you have the kid where there's no speech delay. It's just socially awkward. That used to be called Asperger's syndrome. That's now been merged into the whole great big autism spectrum. And yes. In fact, I have a niece who is um, on the spectrum at that end. And um, it, it led to awkwardness for her. And uh, fortunately, our family is incredibly uh, loving and accepting uh, and so it was just who she is, and we loved and accepted her. But I know out in the world she struggled uh, well, to get I that think, kind of love. I've, I spent 25 years uh, working on uh, heavy construction uh, in uh, large factories that process meat. I would uh, sell a system, design a system, do up, draw up all the drawings, supervise this construction. Actually, I worked with a lot of very talented, skilled tradespeople, welders, uh, drafting technicians that could lay out the whole entire factory. And they were, if they were kids today, they'd be diagnosed autistic or dyslexic or ADHD. And there's a lot of crossover with autism and ADHD. Ah. And there's about 30% crossover, both genetically and in how the, you know, just presents. And, uh, and so the special ed department's been building this stuff for, you know, a whole lot of years. Now, there's kind of three kinds of minds. There's the visual thinkers like me that go for art or for mechanics. Then you have your mathematical minds, 
well, they're the ones running Silicon Valley. They're computer scientists, chemists, physicists, and musicians. And then you got your word thinkers that love facts. And autism can have all three of those kinds of specialized minds. But a lot of educators are totally unaware of the, um, some of the people that are quirky and different who build things, who invent things. Some of these people I worked with had 20 patents. I watched your, your TED Talk, which, which I loved. And um, you were talking about how if there were not people that think differently, we would still be sitting by a campfire cold. <laughs> and that really stuck with me that, you know, you have to think out of the box to evolve, to, to invent, to, uh, to find different ways to look at things. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that you epitomize that for sure. You changed the whole cattle processing industry because you thought differently. Well, you see, this is the thing about autism. You see, Einstein probably was on the autism spectrum. Michelangelo was, Thomas Edison. Um, you see, a brain can be more thinking or a brain can be more social emotional. Now, there's a certain amount of this that's just normal variation. Now, obviously, somebody never loves to speak or somebody can't dress themselves up. That's very, very severe disability. This right. is one of the problems we've got with autism is at one end of the spectrum, you've got Elon Musk. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got somebody uh, with epilepsy that can't drive, uh, dress themselves. And, and you know, I was also thinking, I have uh, one of my three children is, is uh, quite intellectually gifted. And she also had, I have to tell you, some similar problems. Uh, she's not on the spectrum, but she was always outside of the box a little bit. People didn't know how to read her or take her, you know, and um, it can be hard anytime there's difference. Uh, anytime we're kind of outside of what people expect, then there can be this kind of alienation. And I wondered how much that factors into anxiety, uh, whether you think it factors into, you know, people on the spectrum being anxious or being, um, traumatized, all those kinds of aspects that are associated, uh, but are they, do they come with the package or is it something about the experience maybe of being othered? Well, I think in my own case, um, I got bullied a lot. I had friends who shared interests. We've got to get the artists together, the people that like to work on cars together, the computer programmers together, you know, friends through shared interests. Those were refuges away from bullying. Yes, that causes anxiety. But in my book, Thinking in Pictures, my autobiography, which I've just recently updated with a new afterward, mm. uh, my anxiety was totally biology. Uh -huh. I've been taking a, a low dose of antidepressants for 40 years. That's fully explained in Thinking in Pictures. I recommend reading the chapter in there about that. Um, I don't think I'd be here now if I hadn't gone on the antidepressant medication. My health was absolutely falling apart in my early 30s with nonstop colitis. And a lot of that cleared up when I went on the anti antidepressant. But the big mistake that people make is too high a dose. Uh. If you're interested in this, I recommend reading that chapter in Thinking in Pictures because I don't want any misunderstanding about medication. So I'd rather have you read it. Well, as a, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a therapist uh, outside of this, this show, and um, I used to be sort of uh, uh, 
inclined towards talk, not medication, but there are things that really respond to medication that will never respond to talk. And that's what you're... (laughs) I was... I'm I'm sorry. I still have a problem with interrupting. I can't... No no worries. I don't mind interruptions, so we're good. I can't get the timing right. No, I was one of the ones where it's biology, and that's why that chapter in Thinking and Pictures is titled A Believer in in Biochemistry. A Believer in Biochemistry. I... um, I was one of the ones where talk was like spitting on a blast furnace. That's just not going to work. Not going to work. Yeah. And and why shouldn't we have whatever help is really helpful to um, to have the best life we can possibly have, right? Which to me is the bottom line on your book, how to nourish a child on the spectrum to have the best possible life they can have. Well, that's right. And I also want to add, there's way too many drugs given out like kids. There's a lot of bad stuff done with drugs. Too many heavy-duty antipsychotic drugs given out when they shouldn't be. Um, There's a lot of bad stuff going on with drugs. But when they're used right, like it was with me, I don't think I would have been able to have done become a college professor if I hadn't done, uh, found the medication. This is another thing that really, uh, you know, I do want to spend some time talking about your, the, the kind of mindsets that you describe in the book, but this idea to keep an open mind about what a particular person, i.e. child with autism needs, to keep the book open and to consider every thing that might be impacting them to be aware of the way they might be uh, have having related psychological or physical problems, you know, to kind of pay complete attention to that particular child that the, that the diagnosis only gets you paying attention. It doesn't tell you what to do next necessarily. Well, no. And the other thing I see too many people sort of becoming their diagnosis for me, career comes first. And um, we got to get kids exposed to a whole lot of different things. My school had art, it had sewing, it had woodworking. Um, I love those classes. I think a big mistake that's been made in some of the schools is taking out hands-on classes like, like auto shop, welding, theater, music, art, cooking, sewing. Because these are things that can lead to good careers. But you're Absolutely. not going to find out what you like unless you try it. Okay, music's another one. How can you find, how how do you know whether you're going to like musical instruments if you don't try them? I well, tried them, yes, and they did not work for me. But another kid will just take Magic. off playing the piano in, or playing a flute or whatever. In fact, uh, reading your book, I was I was remembering with so much fondness a young woman who um, was was uh, didn't speak at all. She she was on the spectrum. She didn't speak at all. She was high school age, and she joined the youth. A choir that's associated with my adult choir. And for her, singing was complete magic. Good. Um, Good. Within a year, she had joined the adult choir and she was talking and singing. Good. That's yeah, wonderful. it was, it, it's an exact example of what you're talking about, that that was her magic potion, you know. <laughs> and then she was able to, um, because of that, do a lot of other things that she wasn't doing when she joined the choir uh, at all. And, of course, nobody would have 
for sure thought that she could sing since she wasn't talking. <laughs> you know, well, so it, so it took someone saying, "Well, let's just try it out." You know, let's just see what happens, and it was it was really magical. So I think that's an example of what you're describing. That's wonderful. That's great. So let's let's talk just a bit. Um, we'll we'll only get a start before our break, but um, maybe the most crucial thing, and you put it right at the beginning, is this statement. Uh, in terms of mindset, every child is more than autism. It seems obvious. On the other hand, I know that um, diagnoses can lead to a kind of foreshortening of who you think a person is. Oh, they are now autism. (laughs) And um, I'm wondering if you have seen any change in kind of educational environments and, you know, um, people who work with autism, is there progress being made on this first statement, every child is more than autism? Well, we've made a lot of progress on early intervention. That's really important. But I'm seeing too many older kids where they're kind of getting locked into the label. This is Deborah Moore's saying in Navigating Autism. She came up with this, don't get locked into the label Mm. and the importance of seeing the whole child. And I think that's really important because I think a lot of teachers, a lot of parents get locked into the label. I've got to give Deborah more credit for that. She came up with that. And I think it's a really um, it's a really great saying, don't get locked into the label. I can really imagine that happening because um, with, with all kids, if you have a certain, you know, those studies they've done on uh, telling teachers the, the kids' IQ, telling them wrongly um, as an experiment and then they start relating to a kid as if they are that number. And, right. and they match the teacher's expectation. And I could imagine that, that it happens in this, in this area, too, that if, if the teacher or therapist or whoever it is that's interacting with the kid is not saying, okay, what's going on there that that's happening? And kind of looking at it from lots of point of view, you could really get um, off track. Well, that's absolutely right. That is absolutely right. Do you, do you end up uh, yourself, uh, you know, you're pretty, you're pretty well-known, you're pretty noted. Uh, do people reach out to you to help them when they're stuck? You know, are people now thinking, maybe I'm not coming out this the right way? <laughs> you know, I, as a therapist, I have to say, questioning myself is, is vital, right? Am I, am I uh, missing something? I have to do that constantly. Uh, is your sense that people are doing that more when it comes to autism? Well, I think they are, but I'm really had, glad that Elon Musk came out because when I read Ashley Vance's book about Elon Musk, I, I always thought he was autistic, and, but I couldn't say it. But now that he's come out, and I think that's good to see somebody right now that's definitely autistic and very successful. And you know, I was thinking about uh, uh, Greta Thunberg. That's right. Because she, she, same thing, and and the interviews I've seen of her are just so remarkable to have a person that young claiming herself in the way that she is, you know, which you do, but you're older, right? <laughs> You've oh, had yeah. time I, to I, do that. But, but that's good what she did because you see that kind of single-mindedness of purpose. 
and, and that yes, can get a lot of things done. And Elon Musk, it's all about space, and for Greta Thunberg, it's about you know climate. And and the ability to ignore it. She said, I don't really care whether people agree with me. I know I know what I know, <laughs> you know, right. which is a real advantage in any um, in any radical sinker. It's time for our first break and we'll come back to that uh, again in a moment. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America and to find Temple Grandin, you can go to templegrandin.com. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more... Follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Temple Grandin about her new book, Navigating Autism. And of course, we were emphasizing before the the break this concept of of looking at the whole child and not just the aspects that uh, are seen as part of of autism. And uh, what I'm thinking about in terms of that is that children still have individual interests, things that fire them up, things that don't fire them up, um, things that bore them, things that they love. Uh, even within those categories you mentioned. Um, and I wonder if parents and educators aren't always looking for those things, that it may be hard to, they're just trying to get the kid to, you know, not have a meltdown or, you know, um, how to change certain behaviors. But to me, it's the other way around. If you if you go into that, isn't it easier to get the child on board with a certain uh way of behaving. 
Well, I mother always encouraged things I was good at. Art was always encouraged. And I was uh, I used to like to make things and uh, make kites and things like that. And mother always encouraged that. I've got another book called Calling All Minds. It's all my childhood aviation uh, projects. And I'm finding today a lot of kids aren't even doing things like making a snow, a paper snowflake or making um, a paper airplane. We've got kids growing up today totally removed from the world of the practical. And I think mm-hmm. that's a big concern when these people are going to be policymakers tomorrow. We've got no <laughs> yes. practical uh, knowledge of anything. Another big concern I've got, I've talked about the visual thinker like me, who thinks in pictures, the math thinker and the word thinker. Us, our visual thinkers, we can't do algebra. I am concerned that we're going to just be screened out of something like a skilled trade or art, something like that, or industrial design that we'd be very good at because um, I, to this day, I haven't passed an algebra class and I got out of it because in 67, thank goodness, it was not the required course. <laughs> yes, I got out of a lot of things because when I was in college, they weren't required. I would have really struggled and, you know, for, for different reasons. Um, not, such a, not, not such a science mind me, but <laughs> so I understand what you're talking about there. And, you know, that's, that's what schools do, too, is they kind of teach to the middle, in mm-hmm. a sense. Even uh, this same child of mine that I was talking about, we had her in a private school, supposed to be, you know, paying attention to who each child was and all that. But no, she she was not getting what she needed there. We had to take her out um, because they were teaching to the the kind of median. Um, well, I have a when I do talks on different kinds of minds, I have a slide where I say, "What would happen to some of our great innovators today? Now, what would happen to Einstein today? He didn't talk until he was three. He would land in an autism class today. Where would he end up? Playing video games in the basement." <laughs> and yes. we've got to control the video game playing. They're not having good outcomes. Mm-hmm. They're ending up just in the bedroom of the basement, just uh, playing video games all day. I can see that that's a real, uh, you know, I, I also think about this from a parent's perspective, um, how how hard it is to tolerate. You have a lot in the book about uh, the growth zone, how to not just go for comfort, and I think that's a very hard thing for parents to do, to actually, um, especially if your child is struggling in some way, to actually uh, encourage them to struggle enough to grow. Um, because a lot of parents just end, end up kind of doing what's easy because they don't want to see their kid unhappy. Well, that's the problem. I'm seeing a lot of kids that are fully verbal with an autism label that are not learning basic skills like going shopping. I was shopping when I was, uh, you know, seven years old. I'd buy little things. And and I just was on a Zoom call with some parents just for getting on this, talking to one mom, and she was having problems with letting her child uh, go up to the window and order something at McDonald's, even mm-hmm. if she was sitting in a booth where she could see everything. I'm seeing a lot of parents having a hard time letting go to have the kid do the simplest things like run in a store where they're right outside the store and, and learn how to buy things and learn how to talk to the staff in the store. And I can see there's two parts of that, you know, uh, 
I'm aware with my own kids that I had to pay a lot of attention to letting them grow up. Yes. <laughs> right? Just yep. just a normal parenting, letting them grow up, not answering for them, you know. And then if you add that the way that a kid on the spectrum might communicate might lay them open to negative experiences with the person on the other end. And that that added layer of protectiveness, I could imagine, factors in here. Well, I've been running into this a whole lot, and I've had situations where kids, uh, uh, I've talked to parents, and in fact, I'm thinking of one case right now, it's a 12-year-old kid at one of the airports. We were sitting at the gate and talking to the mom and the daughter, and I found out she hadn't shopped, so I pulled some money out of my wallet, and I said, go across the hall of that store and buy something. And she went and bought a drink and brought the change back. But we were right there. We could see the store. It was across the hall. It was the first time that she had shopped. And that, that is a real, uh, that was illuminating for me that um, it's not just a matter of, of capability. It's a matter of exposure that uh, one thing that goes along with the label sometimes is an assumption of inability, Yes. And of course, every kid has to learn to shop. They don't. They don't come knowing how to do that. Oh, you have to teach them. <laughs> no. And when Deb and when Deborah Moore talks about label locking, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And I've talked to a lot of moms, and they really have trouble letting go on the most simple things like the shopping. And then if you if you uh, push that further into things that might lead to a job as an adult, that's even bigger, right? Well, that's uh, right. And mother got me a job when I was 13 years old for a dress. There was a dressmaker that had worked out of her home. And um, mother got me a little job there taking dresses apart and doing hand sewing. And she just did it in the neighborhood. And I did it two afternoons a week in the summer. And learning working skills. We need to be doing more stuff like that just in the neighborhood. Finding little jobs. Because I have a lot of grandparents that come up to me. And they were the type of of autistic person that had no speech delay. And they discover that they're autistic when the kids get diagnosed. Ah, it feels familiar, huh? (laughs) Yeah. But the grandparent had a paper route at a young age and learned how to work. Now, in the U.S., all the paper routes are gone. But we've got to find substitutes for that, like a volunteer job at a church, a volunteer job at a farmer's market or a community center where they're doing a task on a schedule outside the family. Really important to start learning that at a young age. I love the story of the young person. Uh, it was it was uh, later on in the book, Envisioning a Successful Adulthood was, I think, the section. And uh, this young man was fascinated with trains. And you described how that eventually evolved into a job uh, and all the steps along the way. Okay, go to the train museum, volunteer. Okay, maybe this person will let you kind of... T- shadow them, you know, just step by step by step, but always with that intention that it could lead to a meaningful and productive adulthood. Well, that's right. And um, I was at a museum recently that had an antique uh, fire engine with a steam operated pump. I mean, it's a massive pump, thousand gallons a minute. That's a big pump. And um, I'm pretty sure this guy was on the spectrum. And he loved talking about that antique uh, fire engine and showing it to everybody. 
<laughs> you know, the, you, uh, you've said several times, I'm pretty sure this person was on the spectrum. I imagine you have a bit of a possibly, uh, you know how we we resonate with people we have something in common with? That's I, right. <laughs> you know, that's true of me, right? I I. I can tell when someone is like me in certain ways, including people who've had big loss. I can I can smell that a mile away. Sure. <laughs> right? uh, so I'm guessing that you have that sort of sixth sense about it. Well, I can remember uh, uh, drafting people that were designing entire factories that I worked with, welding people that were inventing equipment with patents, a guy that worked in the electrical shop at a big factory and he could do anything electrical. I'm pretty sure all these people were on the spectrum, and that's why I got along with them. But Mm. they were appreciated for their work. One thing I learned to do, sell my work, not my personality. So when I went out to sell jobs, I'd show people my drawings. I'd show people my photographs. And when they saw my portfolio of my work, I got hired to design things for them. I learned to sell my work rather than myself. Um, Now, some companies like Microsoft right now are – recruiting people on the spectrum and letting them come in and, and do a two-week trial to, to show what they can do. Oh, that seems fantastic. Because I think that is something that's that's gotten a little lost is um, being allowed to be not great at, at the start, being allowed to be a beginner. That's right. Uh, and that translates, you know, this thing they talk about with with um, young people today, they want to skip ahead to the end. Well, I think part of that is there's a pressure to skip ahead to the end, to already know how to do everything and already be accomplished. Um, so I really like what you're saying in general. And then I, uh, again, would imagine it's even more important if you're um, on the spectrum somewhere different, you know, out of the box a little bit. How do you, uh, what gave you that idea yourself to bring your bring your product with you and um, sell yourself that way? Was One that something I figured out very early on? Is that if certain people could open the door? There's a scene in the HBO movie where I go up to the editor of the Farmer Ranchman magazine. I get his card because I knew if I wrote for that magazine, that would really help my career. And then I sent him a really good article about my master's thesis project on the behavior of cattle, you know, during handling. I saw the door and, and there was a chance meeting where I met a lady who got me into the, um, actually it was a swift meat packing plant. They had to change it to Abbott in the movie, but it was a swift meat packing plant. But how I recognized where those back doors into good jobs were, because when I got the press pass for that magazine, I got into big, expensive national meetings with big registration fees for free. I, I took advantage of that. <laughs> I saw that door. I, I wonder this. You, you've described yourself as a visual thinker. Even more specifically in your TED Talk, you talked about that you see specific pictures. If someone says uh, church steeple, you see specific church steeples, right? That capacity to visualize, I could imagine that might help. Like you could visualize going to the interview, how to, how to sell yourself, you know, that you could. And of course, as a therapist, I'm walking people through that kind of thing all the time, you know, well, think, think forward to the end of this story, right? Um, I would imagine you're especially good at that. 
Well, when I um, one thing I really liked about the HBO movie Temple Grand is it showed exactly how I think visually. That's accurate. And there's a scene in there where all the men are around the desk and I'm showing off my drawings. You know what really turns me on? That's a copy of a real drawing, a real out on desk. Uh, I'm sure that mattered to you. (laughs) My real drawing was on that desk, a copy of one. I sent HBO a whole roll full of drawing copies to use for props. And that made me very happy to, to see my drawing there. Because then it's real, isn't it? Yeah. Even even though, uh, of course, you didn't play yourself. No. <laughs> but it has to it has to resonate with the truth, or you would have been very disappointed by it. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And who wouldn't be actually? Uh, you know, if your life is being um, exemplified and it doesn't feel like your life, that must be actually disturbing for anyone. No, they they did a nice job with the movie. Uh, Claire Danes got all my ancient old VHS tapes, and they played them over and over and over again. And and uh, she kind of became me. I thought they did a very good job with that. Um, but I've I've worked in in industry with a lot of people that I know are on the autism spectrum: um, uh, dyslexics, autistics, um, ADHD, and these are people that own businesses. Mm-hmm. And then yes. what I'm seeing happening to the kid today is playing video games in the basement because he never got a chance to take a welding class or take a theater class and find out that maybe he might like acting because he wasn't exposed to these things. And and as as someone in mental health, um, I, I feel that those, that's an invitation for um, shame, uh, lack of self-acceptance, uh, unhappiness of various kinds when who you are and what you have is not honored, but put down in, in some ways, that's, that's actually a kind of ongoing trauma. Don't you think? Well, the biggest barrier I had when I started in the cattle industry was, you know, as a woman in a man's industry, that was a much bigger barrier. (laughs) I had a very big uh, motivation to prove I wasn't stupid. And that's what motivated me to do those projects that were shown in the movie, uh, the, the um, dipping vat project. And I wanted to prove that I was not stupid. And when I got those jobs done, I was just so happy about it. Um, and the people that were bad to me were the middle managers. They were not the owners of the plant or the feed yards. They were not the people just working on the line. It was the middle management, foremans. That's where all my trouble was. I, I can imagine that because that middle management place is betwixt and between. Um, you're you're trying to make what the boss wants to happen happen, and you're trying to, you know, have employees obey you. And it, it, there's not much attention, uh, as in my experience, on um, humanizing what's happening. Um, it's a it's an obedience part of the story often. And so I can see that they would probably be res- the most resistant to another way of looking at it or another another way of doing it. Well, and the other thing I did help promote a lot of my ideas is I would design a project and then I wrote about it. And I wrote just really clear how-to articles and drawings and how to build things. And um, when I wrote one of my early articles in a national beef magazine, I was so happy when it got picked up by two other cattle uh, publications. I was so happy about that. This is real early in my career. 
the thing is, um, to me, that came out of empathy for yourself, you know, knowing what helped to calm you down. And then you applied it to cattle because you cared about animals. You know, it yep. kind of was a building process. That's you right. could feel your way into what it might be like to be going running that gauntlet. Well, I knew it. I could imagine what it would be like if I was a cattle. And my very first behavior work, I looked at what cattle were seeing, and they refused to walk over a shadow or a coat on a fence or a piece of chain or something hanging down. And nobody else thought to look at what cattle were seeing, because in my twenties, I thought everybody was a visual thinker. I didn't know that other people were not visual thinkers. It was a shock <laughs> when I discovered that a lot of other people um, think in words rather than in pictures. And getting back to the church steeple question, um, I asked that that same question to a, to a speech therapist, and I was shocked that she just drew two little lines, pointy thing. That's all she saw, where mm -hmm. I see specific ones, and I start naming off where they're at. I ask another visual thinker that same question, and they'll start naming them off, the actual locations. And they come up like PowerPoint slides. You know, it's interesting because the, uh, my wife is an artist, and um, when we first met almost 25 years ago, uh, one day she was saying, you know, I don't, I don't think in words, I see it in visually, and I have to translate, and that's why I speak slowly sometimes. Because he explained so much about her, <laughs> you know, um, not on the spectrum, but that same idea, the way that you think then really does determine the way you interact to a great yeah. degree. And um, to, have a, to have a use for that, her beautiful art comes directly out of that. If she wants That's to right. say something, she paints it, you know. Um, I'm happy about that, <laughs> believe yeah, me. That's right. So I think there's, there's uh, there are, I feel when we dive deep into any, any way of being human, we learned something about being human in general. That's right. Um, the idea that we can uh, focus on strengths and not deficits, that we can live at our growth edge but not overwhelm ourselves. All of these principles that you enumerate in your book are just really good living principles well. As that's well. right. And, and um, I'm seeing a lot of talented kids where they don't get the opportunity to try out different things that could be, you know, careers. I mean, this is why I, people ask me, what would you do if you could, you know, make school a lot better? I put in all the hands-on classes we had in the 50s and even in the 70s and 80s that we still had uh, because we need all the different kinds of minds and you don't know what you're going to like unless you try it. I tried musical instruments. They were not for me. Art right. was the thing I was good at. Sewing I was very good at and woodworking I was really good at. And I really liked them. I do so agree with you. I just I just watch um, different children I know in my own life and the ones that get exposed to just tons of different things. Um, they they fire up more. That's right. Even if they don't end up having a a career in whatever it might be, it teaches them how to focus on something, how to care about something. Uh, most of the kids I know who are now grown, uh, not all of them are doing what their passion was as kids, but they're doing it as a sideline. So, you know, it, it contributes to really having a, a satisfying life. Well, that's right. That's absolutely right. So, uh, 
you know, this kind of skipping ahead to the end, I suppose, but um, envisioning a successful adulthood, um, of course, is is very individual. Um, what about relationships and successful adulthood? What would you say yourself? We just have a minute left. On relationships, uh, it's going to be friends through shared interests. On the autism spectrum, when marriages have been successful, it's usually through shared interests, like two computer programmers or two artists or two mm. scientific researchers. Um, because for me, um, the people I tend to be friends with, we tend to be interested in, in a lot of the same things, maybe interested in animals, interested in building things, uh, uh, interested in science. Those are things that would be shared interests. When I was in high school and the bullies were uh, after me, the refuges where I could be away from uh, bullies were a horseback riding, a model rocket club, and electronics lab. So uh, it's interesting because the the uh, clients I've had who are married to people on the spectrum, uh, it's an interesting way to think about it because uh, one of the marriages that I was involved in in trying to support um, just really didn't work. And, you know, they kept expecting the wrong things from each other. That It was never going to work because they didn't have what the other person wanted, right? But the other marriage does work. And I think that they share a sort of focus on practical life. Yes, that's right. That's <laughs> actually right. For me, I'm really into the world for, for the practical. And I want to see kids uh, get out there and be everything they can be. Some of the most fun stuff I ever did was figuring out how to build things. Also, some of the most stressful stuff because I was out there, got to build stuff and I got to make it work. <laughs> right. That's not an easy thing for sure. But but I think look, what we could end on for today is uh, a, a little bit of what we could call stress in the service of growth is worth it. That's right. As long as it's not too much. Would that well, be fair what, to say? Yes. And that's what mother called stretching. I like visual analogies. You want to stretch the child, but don't chuck them in the deep end of the pool. <laughs> yes. Yeah. True of, true of most kids, they tend to freak out when you push them too far. No, you have to stretch. <laughs> just the, she had a very good instinct of just how much to stretch me. She always would give me some choices, too. She said, well, you could do this or you could that, do that. There were some choices of stretching activities. The, you know what? I want to end Temple by saying that I appreciate the gift your mother gave to the world in, in nourishing you. And I really want to thank you for being with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been um, great to be on the show. Wonderful. If you want to find more about Temple Grandin's work, you can go to templegrandin.com. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.